Today, the impact of coronavirus on the food chain. Millions of people in Zimbabwe are short of food and clean water. Fishery stores are working to uh, juggle unprecedented demand. This food system has come under greater pressure than at any time in living memory. Food prices have trebled since the virus was found in Sudan. Coronavirus has become a hunger crisis. Welcome to Frontline Food. Hello and welcome to the last episode of this series. We've come a long way, from the history of colonialism and the operations of the East India Trading Company in the 1600s, to the industrialisation of our food systems in the 1950s, right up to the present day, taking a look at the recent coronavirus pandemic and how this is relevant to our food history and the agricultural systems of 2020. But we've also looked beyond, exploring the radical grassroots actions that are taking place around the world to build a more resilient future for all. These examples are diverse in their cultural and ecological practices, but they are all held together by a want for change and the fight for seed and food sovereignty. The food sovereignty movement is kind of like a response of peasant and farming communities all over the world to incursions on their traditional agricultural systems and on their traditional markets. This is Humphrey Lloyd from the Market Garden Edible Futures in Bristol and the Campaigner for the Land Workers Alliance. So what I mean, what I mean by this is going right back to the 1950s, 1960s and the, the rollout of the Green Revolution, Green Revolution seeds and the Green Revolution industrial agricultural packages like fertilisers, irrigation and the like that went with it massively impacted on traditional farming communities and traditional farming communities across the world saw their seeds being replaced by high yield variety seeds and latterly GM seeds and often their access to their traditional farmlands being restricted and their agricultural economies being shifted away from subsistence and production for local markets and towards global trade towards export of cash crops and traditional farming systems being replaced by, for example, monoculture of coffee, monoculture of sugar, monoculture of palm oil. Um, and then you had another layer of this, which you probably call neoliberalism or structural adjustment programs in the 80s and 90s. Again, that were governmental programs rolled out um, on behalf of the International Monetary Fund, but often implemented by local governments that wholesale changed local agricultural systems, shifted from subsistence agriculture to export agriculture and brought in modern technologies and modern irrigation systems and modern technologies and modern fertilizers and the like. Um, and whilst, the, whilst this kind of like wholesale takeover of global agriculture came with some benefits like increased yields, local communities of peasants, indigenous peoples and farmers all over the world responded very very strongly to it and they kind of experience this as their food systems being taken over, their food systems being violated, their local markets being disrupted, their local seeds being replaced, their lands being expropriated, their forests being shut down, their traditional hunting grounds being taken over. And so their response to this was, we don't want you guys, be it national governments, foreign corporations, international organizations like the International Monetary Fund, we don't want you guys dominating our food and farming systems. We want to have control over this ourselves. We want to determine the seeds that we use. 
we want to have jurisdiction over our traditional lands. We want to still have access to our local markets. We want to grow our traditional crops. And so the kind of movement that farmers and peasant communities all across the world came up with was a movement called food sovereignty, which means our rights to defend our lands, our seeds, our food and farming system. Okay, it's about control. The word sovereignty means control. It means to have control over something, to have jurisdiction over something. And so the global political movement that peasant communities came up with in response to basically global capitalism and the rollout of global capitalism through the Green Revolution, structural adjustment and global trade was food sovereignty, was a response of, on behalf of peasant communities saying, we ourselves will, def will define our food systems, not you. Okay. And that kind of became articulated um, in a movement called the Food Sovereignty Movement and a global organization called La Via Campesina, which means the way of the peasant or the way of the farmer, um, at a big meeting in, the kind of, in 1998, I believe, in Belgium. And so it was at this kind of, these early meetings of La Via Campesina that this vision of food sovereignty as a, a food, as a food and farming system defined against global capitalism was kind of first articulated. You might well ask the question, well, what relevance does that have, a movement of peasant communities of indigenous people, people like us in a developed country like the UK where we get our food from supermarkets? Like, what is the relevance? And it's a very strong question. Um, and what I would say to that is this. In a country like the UK, we also have very little control over the way our farming is done, over the food we consume. We have the right to go into a supermarket and we are offered a massive range of extremely cheap food products from all around the world. And we have the right as a consumer, if we have the money, to buy whatever we like. But that's kind of where our sort of power in the food system ends, okay? Because, for example, if, you, if we forget about the consumption end of things and think about production, if you as a person living in the UK want to get involved in producing food, growing food, rearing livestock, for example, it's very difficult, okay? If you want to take on a farm and start producing food, the land is extremely expensive, right? It's about eight, 9,000 pounds just per acre these days. And even if you happen to have that land, if, sorry, even if you happen to have that money, finding the land available for sale or rent is very difficult. So that we've got this issue about an access to land. Since the Enclosures Act came into force in England and Wales between the early 1600s to 1900s, which transferred land from the commons to private ownership, people have been ripped from the land, driving a gap between people and their food. Even if you were able to access that land and produce some vegetables, for example, then it's very difficult to sell them. It's very difficult to sell them because a very small cartel of supermarkets have a total stitch up of food retail. So you'd find it very difficult to retail your food produce. Um, so if you wanted to get a job on a farm, so if you want to set up as a farmer or become an agricultural labourer, you'll find that very difficult as well because the history of industrialization and mechanisation has meant that there are very few people employed in agriculture anymore in a country like the UK. Less than 1% of the population is employed in this most crucial direct relationship with the land that produces our food. So if we think about this like person in the UK standing in the supermarket again, yeah, they have the kind of right to buy a whole wealth of food if they have the money to do so. 
But if they want to produce food, processed food, retail food, it's almost like they barely have the right, okay? They barely have the right to be involved in their food system bar in the capacity of a consumer. And so food sovereignty for us as people living in the UK and other rich countries like the UK in 2020, it's about our right to get involved in this food system again, okay? To be able, for example, to take on a small amount of land and grow some food. To be able to save our own seeds and use our own seeds. To be able to set up a, a small business that is retailing food to our local community. To be able to take a labouring job or a farm job on another farm. It's, a, it's about being able to sort of like gain access to and have a stake in all different aspects of the food production system, right from production, processing to retail. Helping to give support to new entrant market gardeners and farmers is a scheme called Starter Farms. And earlier this year, Nell Benny and Rosie Aiken joined the fight for food sovereignty with their starter farm business, Rosie and Nell's Veg in Stroud, England. Hiya, my name's Nell and I co-run Rosie and Nell's Veg, which is a starter farm in Stroud. So the starter farm concept is when a large established farm rents out a small area of that land to new entrant growers, which are growers who haven't got any family history in growing. Um, for us, we have two years and we'll be finished in 21. Um, and it's when we basically have the space to try out our business idea um, and to see if we're right for growing and market gardening. As a starter farm, we exist as a way to support entrant growers into farming. And that's a really important way in which we can kind of tackle the problems of land ownership by giving people who don't have that access to land the space to kind of trial it out and be creative and see if they even want to go into this business before having laid down, potentially gotten loans and gotten, yeah, having to put down loads of money onto a site. Um, yeah, which feels quite liberating for me and yeah, hopefully for Rosie as well in the way in which we're given that space. Starting a market garden as tough as it is, but to do this during a time of COVID made the journey even harder for Rosie and Nell. But despite their many challenges, just like Kate and Katie we heard from in the last episode, these powerful and motivated young women farmers were incredible in stepping up to help feed their local community during this time of uncertainty. We started our business, um, the Rosie and Nails Veg, in January. Um, and we were doing it based on the idea of selling just to restaurants, really, and having some food going to people in Stroud having like a little stall on site but kind of the main bulk of our produce would be going to restaurants and that's primarily because as a really small producer we only have just under an acre um, and with no real infrastructure on site it's a lot easier for us to kind of grow a lot of things in bulk and then send them off to restaurants and not have to store anything or have any sort of shop infrastructure um, so yeah, when the restaurants were closed down, our kind of entire business model just didn't was yeah wasn't working at all. So we had to completely rechange our seed plan and change what we were growing that year because growing for restaurants is when you grow a small amount of crops, a small variety of crops, but you grow them to a really high standard. Um, whereas growing 
for the general public you've got to have quite a large variety of crops available to kind of entice them to come up to do their weekly shop so suddenly yeah we changed a lot of what we were planning on doing um to try and include some more staples and to try and have the diversity which would encourage people to come up to our shop on site and our shop on site did actually sustain us throughout most of the period I mean we were earning very little but we were earning from that and we were also selling through the open food network online um, which is a really great way of people having access to their local food producers and we were selling through Stroud Co who've been yeah a really great support in this time I mean I really felt it during coronavirus um, the way and yeah just how important it was to be a local food producer at that time and really feeling like we were feeding people in our community and being able just to be there on site and to answer people's questions and to feel like we were being able to pass on a bit of knowledge as well to people who were trying to start their own growing projects at home. Um, yeah, it was just a great time to feel really connected to the food and the, and the food movement in Stroud. This is yet another example of how the coronavirus has opened up the opportunity for more community resilience in our food systems. But like for many market gardeners and small-scale farmers, the dominance and convenience of supermarkets is one of the toughest battles to fight. Supermarkets here really dominate our food landscape. And as soon as people were more able to go to supermarkets more easily, um, we saw a massive fall in the amount of people who are coming up to our store on site and also with our online sales as well, um, which was quite sad. We kind of thought that maybe people would be really excited about the local food and wanting to continue to support it after things became easier for them. But um, it seemed like, although that had happened to an extent, a lot of people just went back to what they knew before. Um, yeah, which is a bit upsetting. But alongside that a few weeks later um some of our restaurants and market traders and cafes started getting hold of us and our trade has now picked up quite a lot um with them being back on board which is great as good friends of mine i was so pleased to hear their sales have picked back up with the support of their local retailers but as nell explains the issues they experienced in their sales dropping cannot be solely put on the consumer because the driving down of price of industrially produced food by supermarkets and the policies and systems put in place by the government simultaneously makes locally, sustainably produced food both inequitable for the farmer and inaccessible to many consumers. The price that we get for food is just does not reflect the work that goes into it, and that's a systemic problem across, I guess, across the West, really, maybe across the world, I don't really know. Um... Yeah, the food prices for us are really difficult. And that's not something then that I feel you can just put on consumers because of the way in which, yeah, we've been crippled by austerity for so many years and the insane high price of living. I don't feel like the answer to that is then just to be like, well, we're going to put up the price of our food because you're just still not giving people access to that. So it's part of like a much larger picture, really, of, yeah, people being able to have more money in the UK and to be more comfortable and to be able to spend more of their income on food. Yeah, just the high cost of rent and the high cost of living just completely disables that with people. CSAs, or Community Supported Agricultural Schemes, are one of the ways that growers and farmers have begun to build back community into our food systems, which has loads of benefits for both the farmer and their community. 
my name is Humphrey Lloyd and I'm the head grower at a project called Edible Futures, which is a market garden on the outskirts of Bristol. We've been running a market garden at Edible Futures now for, I think this is our eighth season. And we grow a range of horticultural produce, cut salads, high value vegetables, herbs and the like. And we distribute them to um, cafes and restaurants, the Bristol cafe and restaurant trade. But also we have a small CSA scheme called Salad Drop. CSAs are an amazing way for a farmer to kind of collect, connect with their local community and to make a robust business model, basically. Um, CSAs have kind of come up as a response to the fact that it's so hard to make a living to pay your rent and to pay for the necessities of life through being a farmer due to various structural inequalities in the food and farming system. Um, so CSAs are kind of a response to the fact that it's very hard to pay yourself a living wage if you're just selling your food via a middleman, mainly a supermarket. So CSAs are a great way for you, the farmer, to capture all the money in the food pound that the consumers are spending. So with our salad bag scheme, which is a small CSA scheme, we get whatever it is. I think it's £14.50 per kilo for the salad because it's going directly to the membership. If we were selling that through a supermarket or through some other retailer, we'd probably only get about 60% of that. So a really nice thing about having a CSA scheme with a membership is the members, because they're getting stuff locally from the farm, they really feel quite connected to it. Quite a few of them actually know the farm and have been up here sometimes to help out and volunteer, sometimes to pick up produce. So there's really like a bit of a relationship developed between the membership and the farmer. So it's not just a market relationship. And that's what's amazing about CSAs is it's a kind of like early experiment in breaking down the strictly market relationship between the food producer and the food consumer and making it more of a kind of community relationship. Many CSAs and similar community-based farming models are also working to make this food more accessible and affordable to the wider public. Ironically, we have 1.9 million tonnes of food going to waste in the UK every year and over 8.4 million people experiencing food poverty. This is an extensive issue to tackle and it cannot be solved by our farmers alone. It requires a whole systems approach to change. But one of the ways in which Edible Futures are doing their bit is by introducing a solidarity box scheme. So our solidarity box scheme goes back to the beginning of COVID-19 lockdown in March. So when the COVID lockdown came into force, um, Myself, like you know, hundreds of thousands, millions probably of farmers around the world thought, how is this going to affect us and how do we need to respond? Um, I was highly aware of the fact that the UK is a island nation that imports 90% of its fruits, almost 60% of its vegetables. Um, we eat a lot, something like 25% of our consumer spending is in like, pubs, cafes and restaurants that were all closed overnight. I was basically highly aware there were going to be like serious shocks to our food system and to the horticulture se sector specifically because of COVID-19. And so I thought, what, how do I respond to this? Um, my first response was that we basically needed a massive ramp up of production in the context of local markets. So food producers like myself needs to produce more, but not, produce more with a mind to just like selling commodity crops to the supermarkets but like with a sort of community destination for it in mind okay so what we did was um we did a shout out on social media saying that we needed some more land to grow more food which luckily enough was responded to by a really nice um local farmer with a pasture fed cattle herd 
So they came through and have given us for free a two-acre field within which to grow um, vegetables for this COVID-19 season. So we took on this extra land, we took on two members of staff, we bought a tractor, grew loads of extra vegetables. And then after we did that, by that May, June, then we're at the stage thinking, right, soon we're going to have loads of extra vegetables. How are we going to make sure that these vegetables reach the people in greatest need in our community? Um, because it didn't really feel enough to just sell them through the local grocers. For example, the Better Food Company, which are a fantastic shop, but basically charge a premium for their produce and are not accessible to most people in our community. Um, so the system we came up with, which is imperfect, but is a pretty good shot at getting the highest value and most nutrient-dense food to the people that need it most in Bristol, is this scheme that we're calling a Solidarity Veg Box Scheme. So via this scheme, um, you can basically go onto the Edible Futures website and you can either sign up for a household box for which you pay and we deliver to a local drop-off point just in the manner of any other veg box scheme. But you can also make a charitable donation to our Solidarity Veg Box pot and that allows us to offer vegetable boxes for free to people in food poverty. Um, and so the way we've done that distribution of the uh, solidarity boxes on the ground is we've teamed up with a um, local grassroots organization called Borderlands who work with destitute asylum seekers and so that they are taking it's a, it comes to about 20 boxes per week and they're distributing them to um, asylum seekers and refugees in food poverty in Bristol and um, the reason why a broad section of our society cannot afford to eat the best food is not because our food is expensive okay the UK has the third cheapest food of every country in the world. So bar the USA and Singapore, we have the cheapest food on planet Earth, right? And we, on average, spend about 10% of our income on food, which is rock bottom by historic standards and is low in comparison to other countries around the world. The reason that a vast tract of our society cannot afford to eat is because of poverty, not because food is too expensive. And there's been a kind of a recurrent argument that food is too expensive throughout history. And it's been used as a means, as a way to try and justify industrial food production, cheap food imports and the like. OK, this goes right back to the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846, when the justification for driving down British farming and importing cheap grains from places like Russia was that the urban poor could not afford to eat. And what they ignored was the fact that the urban poor were working for starvation wages in the, uh, in the factory system, in the Victorian factory system. That's why they couldn't afford to eat. Okay? Um, and we're presented with the same argument now that like organic farmers, local farmers, CSA schemes are blamed, are held accountable for the fact that people cannot afford their produce. When actually the reason why a large proportion of the population of the UK cannot afford to eat like sustainable and healthy food is because of poverty okay poor people in this country have been subjected to you know roughly 40 years of neoliberal restructuring we've then had lay layered on top of that 10 years of austerity we've now had layered on top of this the COVID-19 lockdown loads of people losing work loads of people having their benefits delayed stopped and the like and the end result of that is in a country like the UK normally quoted as the fourth richest country in the world getting on for 4 million people queue at food banks every week just to be able to feed themselves. Okay. So the answer is poverty. The answer is not that food production 
and, and sustaining on healthy food is too expensive. I next asked Humphrey what were the structural changes that we needed to make a transition into a more just and sustainable food system for all. We need wider structural changes. Okay, so what I mean by that is, um, for example, people in this country spend about 40% of their income on their rent and about 10% of their income on their food. Okay, so if we didn't have a housing crisis and people weren't spending 40% of their income on rent, they could afford to spend more money on food and therefore local food, organic food would become instantly much more accessible. Okay, so that's an example of like a structural change that needs to happen. It's things to do with farming. Um, also, we need a, like a different kind of farming subsidy system that is supporting and making accessible the kind of farming that we want to see more of, agroecological farming, farming that supplies short supply chains and the like. So we need a better agricultural um, subsidy regime. We also need like a big breakup in the supermarket monopoly that currently is responsible for upwards of 90% of retail. So because only eight, only eight supermarkets are responsible for 90% of retail, they are able to command relatively high prices while paying farmers very low prices. So it should be the government's job to break up that monopoly and make the kind of whole food market much more accessible, much more fair. So there's kind of like big picture political stuff that needs to change. But then there are also like little schemes that we as farmers and food growers and retailers and everything on the ground can do to also make our food more accessible. And so the solidarity veg box scheme is an example of that. And we need loads more things like this. We need loads more CSA schemes, community supported agriculture schemes, and loads of other kind of direct marketing schemes, you know, things like uh, micro dairies that are delivering milk to people's doors, community supported bakeries that are baking loaves every week and delivering them to people for a weekly fee, you know, direct marketing systems like this that allow the farmer, the food producer, the food processor to capture more money in the food pound. Um, a nice little anecdotal story around that is a friend of mine who's a dairy farmer guy called Josh Healy, who is able to run a small business that, that supports two and a half employees on more than 20,000 pounds a year from a cattle herd of just, it's like under 20 cows, 17, 18 cows, something like that. And he's able to do that in the context in which loads of other dairy farms that are 10 times the size are going bust, simply because he's delivering the milk himself door to door. And so he's capturing about one pound, one pound 10, one pound 15 in every bottle of milk rather than 15p, 16p, 17p. So we need loads more sort of like direct um, marketing schemes like that. As individuals, eaters and wider citizens, there are many things that we can do to help support this type of system. It's not just about people's roles as consumers. There are much wider structural forces at play. Um, and because there are wider structural forces at play, actually government policy and campaigning and, and political social movements are a massive part of this. So um, actually like being involved in campaign groups or social movements that are looking to create a better food system is very significant. And that might be, for example, like becoming a member of the Land Workers Alliance, for example, and joining some of their campaign work. It might be becoming a member of Greenpeace, you know, who are doing campaigning at the moment about um, uh, deforestation in the Amazon and the wider South American basin um, to do with soy, soy production. Um, so there's a whole kind of like, uh, there's a whole sort of like political campaigning dimension. Um, 
there is obviously as well like being as ethical a consumer as possible you know and that might be for example just getting a local veg box scheme it might be um becoming a member of a local community supported agriculture scheme um it might be you know volunteering in a local community shop for example um you know and there's trying to as much as possible do some food production yourself which is easy to say and difficult to do because not everyone has a garden not everyone has access to an allotment but there is you know there's so much to be gained both you know for a, in lots of different ways by just involving yourself in food production to an extent and getting your hands dirty in the soil um i'd also say there's a really significant aspect in just like like reading understanding the food system informing yourself and so sort of like having a more critical understanding of food and where it comes from and, you know, the whole kind of like the politics that lies within it. Um, but without wanting to end on a negative note, I think kind of like, again, a recurrent thing through what I've been saying is that a long history has kind of disempowered us as individuals in regards to the food system. And it's not easy straight away overnight for that to be reversed. So it's actually not that surprising that so many of us basically feel very disempowered in regards to the food system and don't really know what to do other than to, you know, buy the organic range in the supermarket, for example, or become a vegetarian or, you know, make basically quite small lifestyle and consumer choices. Um, and whilst that doesn't sort of feel adequate, it's not at all surprising that that's kind of all that a lot of us know how to do quite a lot of the time. So if that is the kind of headspace you're in, I'd say, don't give yourself a hard time about that. That's the end result of a long historical process of disempowering us as a population in regards to food. Um, and it's gonna be a long, and it is a long and complex struggle in order to, and it is a struggle for food sovereignty, in order to give us back the power so we really can and do know how to make our food system more sustainable, more just, and really there for all of us. And personally, I see our role as a farm on the outskirts of Bristol, which is obviously a kind of a diverse city with serious poverty issues, serious drug issues, as um, not only producing food in the most sustainable way, but really doing social inclusion as well. Um, and I kind of like see that as a really, really important step that the kind of food sovereignty and sustainable food movement now needs to take is to move away from a kind of like a narrow focus on sustainability and towards social inclusion and food justice as well and what that means is making sure our food is not only sustainably produced but also is going to people who are the most vulnerable in our society it's going to people in poverty it's going to people of color we're bringing in people from a diverse background to work in our fields and the like so that hopefully edible futures will become one very small example of a um of a farm that's trying to do lots of different stuff, A, environmental sustainability, but B, social inclusion, and trying to tackle this really thorny issue of food justice that goes really to the heart of the inequities in, of UK society in 2020. One of the things that the coronavirus lockdown highlighted is just how, um, just how insecure a small island nation like the UK is that is heavily dependent on imports and heavily dependent on industrial farming and that a turn towards not 100% self-sufficiency, but greater self-sufficiency and greater reliance on local, more resilient markets is very important. Um, 
And this was a time in which you had a massive rush on the local food sector. You know, veg box sales went up 111% over three months, um, which is extraordinary. And as kind of evidence of um, the relative resilience of the local food system, as opposed to the industrial global system at the time of a shock to the system like coronavirus. And going forward to climate change and probably renewed bouts of the coronavirus, we're going to see more and greater shocks like this to the system. And so it's really, really important now that we invest in and build up and develop those resilient local farming systems and local markets such that we can weather future shocks to the system all the better. In the last few episodes, we've heard from people making incredible efforts towards food and seed sovereignty around the world, and they have given us huge insight into the work that we can do as eaters, whether we currently have a connection to our food system or not, to further support this wider movement in every way we can. But it takes each and every one of us to make this change happen. Championing change at policy level in the UK is a group of passionate campaigners, including Jyoti Fernandez, who we heard from earlier in this series, and Vicky Hurd, the head of sustainable food and farming policy at Sustain, the Alliance for Better Food and Farming, which is based in London. If you don't already know, the UK is in the process of leaving the EU, something we have been a part of for almost five decades. As a part of this process, the UK has been writing up a new agricultural bill which will determine the future of food and farming in the UK post-Brexit. So Vicky, along with others, have been working tirelessly to ensure better food and farming policies that support food and seed sovereignty efforts will be attached to this bill. Here's Vicky explaining more. We haven't had one since 1947 because of being part of Europe and the common agricultural policy. And so Jyoti and I and many others have been working to get that bill to be good, to be better. We want those peers in the House of Lords to make some amendments. And that's on agroecological farming, on agroforestry, um, on workers as well. Sustain has been trying to get workers to have better treatment in the food system for, for a long time. And one way we could get that is through this agriculture bill. Um, but that's not the only thing that we want to build up that we want to build up the willpower of this government and global governments to protect standards, to protect high standards of animal welfare, of protection of the land, of protection of human health, um, through the way in which we trade. We're not against trade, but trade should be on the basis of a fair and sustainable exchange, be it with your local farmer, or be it with a farmer in Africa or Asia or anywhere. And it should not be on the basis of trade is the objective. It should be on giving good health for everyone as the objective. So one of the problems with the agriculture bill and the trade bill is that they don't build in the ability of parliamentarians to stop trade deals that would harm our ability to protect our environment, protect our farming, protect our food standards and protect animal welfare. Um, and they are kind of facilitating free trade. And it's never really free because it's on the basis of extractive processes on the land so we've got a long work to do to get um, amendments to trade bill and agriculture bill which will protect our standards um, and that that is about willpower of this government and ultimately willpower of every every government to put those standards at the top of the bill and trade deals and free trade as being not the objective anyway we also want fairer fairness in the system so we're trying to get um We've got, we've had successes in getting a fair dealing amendment into the bill, which is supposed to set up statutory codes of conduct for supply chains, and they will be enforced by a new body. They will be mandatory, 
and it would be a miracle if they really happened as they're supposed to happen. We'd be very pleased. But we're very pleased to get this amendment and we're going to fight to get the actual implementation of the measure because farmers have been squeezed. They are squeezed globally, they're squeezed in the UK by an incredibly dominant and concentrated um, supply chain. Nestle, Sainsbury's, Tesco, all these big companies squeeze their primary producers to produce more for less money more quickly with ridiculous cosmetic standards and so on and so forth. So getting all those addressed is part of what our campaigns are about. Um, so we also want to build up the capacity of farmers to do this by having training, advice, to give them support in collaboration and cooperation, which they don't do very well in the UK. Um, so there's loads of different elements of it. And also finally, um, uh, we are keen on supporting the local food system so localized food system building up um the kind of systems that have been really supported during the covid crisis because people recognize and value what those local food systems and their flexibility um to deliver food and a lot of them have seen a massive increase in sales and customers but that could all tail off and so we want to make sure the measures are there to that those systems can have the kind of policies that will help them the planning policies infrastructure but also that people will continue to support them um, so that's absolutely um, core part of going forward to having localized supported um, food systems agricultural bill that supports that and supports agroecology and trade that is subservient to those goals if if there's one thing that we should be doing as a matter of urgency is curbing the, the, the huge growth that's been happening over the last 30 years in factory farming and the feed, the growth of feed systems to feed factory farming, because that's destroying um, the rain, the rainforest, destroying tropical uh, temperate forests as well. It's destroying the forests in, in um, even in Malaysia and Indonesia to provide palm oil and palm kernel, which goes into feeds. But the, far, the factory farming system has got so many negatives and yet good livestock farming systems have positives that we can embrace and we can champion, but they just don't have a hope of out-competing really cheap factory farm food. So if, if there's one thing everybody does, it's, it should be joining campaigns to, to support the total phase down of factory farm food, but also supporting good uh, at small amounts for everybody to eat small but better livestock produce but that's one huge area which even the UN knows at the end of the line it's got to be there because it's so so exhausting our capacity in terms of water in terms of land in terms of greenhouse gas emissions in terms of biodiversity and it's really undermining um, local communities who produce small-scale livestock and, and mixed farming. As Vicky explains the policies of our broken global food system affect us all so while this example demonstrates action taking place here in the UK, our food policies here have impact on people, communities and countries around the world in the same way that their policies influence us. So together, we can work towards a global paradigm shift by collectively taking action on our local food policy. As I see it, change is a sliding scale. If you have nothing to eat and you and your family are going hungry, who is to say that you should care about where your food comes from? Your priority is solely to survive and so it should be. But for many of us around the world, we are lucky enough to know that we have enough food to eat. This then makes it our responsibility, as eaters, as citizens of our local and global communities, and as custodians of this planet, to support a food system that looks after not only ourselves, but others too. 
throughout this series, we've heard many ways in which we can all get involved, and I truly hope that this podcast has helped inform and inspire many of you to join the fight for food and seed sovereignty, in whichever way you can. Whether that's starting to grow something for the first time, or changing the way you already produce your food towards this system. Maybe it's minimising your use of supermarkets and supporting a local farmer. It could be joining together with your local or global community to campaign for a better food and farming system or perhaps learning more about food and seed sovereignty to inform your next step in the journey of change. Whatever it is, it all makes a huge difference, and with every change we make, there is another step that we can take on the journey towards a better food and farming system for all. So join with people and help each other in the fight for good food. But if there is just one thing that you take away from this series, I ask that you simply think before you eat. Where did your food come from? How did it get to you? Who produced it? Who gets to eat it and who doesn't? If we all become more conscious about what we eat and take a moment to stop and think, together we can plant enough seeds of change that will eventually grow into a more healthy, just and resilient food and farming system for all. Stay tuned for Frontline Foods next series by following Frontline Foodcast on Instagram and Facebook or signing up on the website. This is a new podcast channel and I'm always open to ideas for collaboration and partnership. So if you want to get involved or have an idea, email me at hello at frontlinefoodcast.co. Thank you so much to everyone for your ongoing support in sharing, subscribing and reviewing the podcast in iTunes and Spotify. It really means a lot and the more people that listen, the more chance we have of transforming into a truly resilient food system. Until next time, with warmth and solidarity.